0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a brand new series in the book of Exodus called A Desert Experience. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 to 12, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled A Song of Freedom.
1: We have to imagine what it's like for people who have been slaves to suddenly become free. You know, they've been freed from slavery in Egypt in order to be God's chosen people. So can slaves become what Exodus 19, 5 and 6 describes? That is, can they be the covenant-keeping people of God, the kingdom of priests, and the holy nation? Or are these only words, and will they still maintain the spirit of slaves that is on the inside? And that's the focus of our study in Exodus. So hang in there with me. I'll make a few important points of application. You want to hear that. But before I do, I want to make sure that we understand the matter well. You see, according to Exodus 12, verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt, that was 430 years. So let's do a little bit of math, shall we? You know, in my last series on Exodus, and I won't repeat that work here, but the date of the Exodus from Egypt happened in 1446 B.C. And so if we count back 430 years, that would mean that Jacob and his family came to Egypt in the year 1876 B.C. And of course, we know that for a number of years, they were not slaves. Indeed, they were a highly respected people group in the land of Egypt. But Exodus 1 verse 6 says that everything changed. So how did that change come about? Well, Exodus says, now there arose a king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And in my last study in Exodus, I made the point that I thought it's highly likely that the king who didn't know Joseph was not an Egyptian at all. Rather, that king was a Hyksos king. So Egyptologists have told us that from around 1640 BC until around 1530 BC, Egypt was invaded and conquered by an Asiatic people group known as the Hyksos. You know, some suggest that they conquered Egypt because they had superior military technology, and some suggest it was the invention of the use of the chariot. So up to that point, Egypt didn't have them. Now, if that's right, we can say that roughly from 1640 BC until the time of the Exodus, 1446, Israel was in slavery. That would be a period of about 194 years and at the very least that would cover some six generations of people being born into slavery that's a long period of time and that experience profoundly changed their culture from being farmers who had used their entrepreneurial skills to amass considerable wealth to now slaves who were then responsible only to do what their masters demanded the slave mentality in the generations, deeply embedded itself into their culture and into their individual lives. So the question is, can these people become the holy people of God? And that question is very similar to our question as well. We're born into Adam's sin. John 8, 34, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Yeah, we may not even be aware of the profound nature of our slavery to sin, how our sin, our bondage to it, informs our decisions, gives us our self-identity, motivates our dreams of what we think is important and what we think we can hope for, slaves to sin. Now, conversion, that's very much like the Exodus story. It's the mighty hand of God setting us free from our oppressors, and consequently, we're free to be the people of God. And Paul expresses that thought well in Romans 6, verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Yeah, from slaves of sin to obedient servants of Christ. What a change that is. Romans six twenty-two to 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, would you notice that it was never God's intention either for us or for ancient Israel that our salvation should free us unto lawlessness or a life making our own way in this world. We as Christians are set apart unto Jesus for his purposes. Notice how that theme is found in both Testaments. From the First Testament, Jeremiah 10, verse 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That is not in man who walks to direct his steps. That is to say, God is the one who determines our steps. Hope you see that. And then in the Final Testament, 1 Corinthians 619 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Listen, you're not your own. When God rescues you from sin, makes you his own, you're not your own. You're not your own man. You're not your own woman. You were purchased at a price. The one who purchased you now owns you, and he reserves the right to make of you what he wills. And so we come now to that part in the book of Exodus that takes us from the red Sea to the other side where they're set free. Not unlike any sinner that's saved by Christ, now staring back over the waters of their baptism and recognizing they've been set free from slavery to the world, from the flesh, and from the devil, and they wonder, what now? So we come to Exodus 15. This study will take us from the Israelites standing in freedom on the far side of the Red Sea and cover their journey all the way to Mount Sinai, where they will hear the commands of God. As we study this, We'll ask ourselves a repeated question can slaves of egypt become servants of god and likewise can slaves of sin become obedient disciples of jesus and the answer from sinai as we're going to see it's complicated but the answer from the cross is that it's possible through the power of the spirit and so let's begin i'm going to be reading through the first part of exodus 15 which is an anthem of joy it's a song it celebrates deliverance from slavery as the Egyptian army was being swept away in the Red Sea, Israel sang, they worshiped, Moses led them and taught them to sing a song, not of slavery, but a song of deliverance. Indeed, to make sure we truly get the nature of this, let's go back to Exodus 1430 31 It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You know, as the bodies of the soldiers who sought to slaughter them were being washed up on the shore. I mean, it must have been an amazing sight. They're free. How great is their God. And they believed both in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Well, very good. Let's begin our text today. We're reading Exodus 15, 1-3. If we're not careful, we might think that this was a spontaneous song, but it's not. No doubt Moses would have taken the time to compose the song. You know, I don't know how much time passed between the sweeping away of the Egyptian army and the singing of this song. Let's say several days elapsed. And yeah, it would have taken some time for Israel to come to terms with what they just witnessed. You know, God had killed the firstborn in Egypt, and now he had killed the mightiest warriors in Egypt. And then Moses composed a song. I don't know how they learned it. As we're all aware, any time we sing a song, it's far easier to remember the words when it's put to music. I mean, perhaps there were selected singers and they just continued to sing. And in time, everyone in Israel was singing. Let's look at the introduction of the song. It's a summons. It's a summons to praise. You can't just witness the deliverance of God. You've got to sing about it. God's mighty works demand worship. And by the way, that's the purpose for worship in the church today. We have to worship. Christ was crucified for us, Christ was raised for us. We've been born again. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, and we must worship. You know, back in Exodus 15, verse 1 says that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has triumphed gloriously. And some suggest the meaning behind that phrase is that Yahweh has risen up like a wave. The wording makes it plain that Yahweh has shown his greatness through the mighty victories that he has accomplished. You know, we're going to notice some of the wording as we go along. But here, notice verse 1. Reference is made to the throwing of the horse and the rider into the sea. And in verse 4, the chariots and officers are thrown into the sea. And then in verse 5, they sink like a stone. And in verse 10, they sink like lead. And in verse 12, the earth itself swallows them. That is, they're gone. But God is exalted. He is glorious. The idea here is that Israel is to compare her God to the might of the Egyptian military. Who is more glorious? Should they sing of the glory of Egypt? No, no, they should not they should sing of the glory of God.
0: Jesus has entrusted his followers with the sacred mission to make disciples of all nations. Together we share this duty to shepherd the millions of lost souls to the saving truths found in God's Word. But in order to effectively disciple hearts into a dynamic relationship with the Lord, we need to be well equipped to evangelize the unsaved. It's not just about knowing how to share our faith, but being ready to share it when the opportunity comes. This is why Back to the Bible Canada is pleased to offer a booklet called Before You Share Your Faith by Matt Smethurst. This resource guides us through five crucial elements that will give us the tools to be evangelism ready. So, request your free copy today by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.
1: New Testament believers often don't know what to do with verse 4. You know, that passage says, The Lord is a man of war. It's one of the attributes of God. Do we worship a warrior God? Let's put it in context. It was not Israel that defeated Egypt, it was God. Israel had no ability to extricate themselves from the slavery they were under. And when the Egyptian army marched on them, the matter would have ended horribly, but it did not. Go back to Exodus 14, verse 14. Moses there tells Israel, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Or go ahead to the promise Moses gives the people of Israel when they're on the verge of entering the promised land. Deuteronomy 1.30 The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. God fighting for Israel. Indeed, the fight was real, not imagined. That's why later the prophets and the psalmists would mock the idols of the nations. You know, if you call on the idols in the day of trouble, they won't deliver you. The context of God being a warrior is that when Israel was unable to trust in any military strength of their own, God went to war for them. And that's why if we go back to the passage, you know, verse 2, the Lord is called my strength. That is to say, the Lord is the reason for Israel's strength. I mean, you might want to think about Martin Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You remember Luther's description of God? God is a mighty fortress. God is a bulwark that never fails. God is our helper in the midst of mortal strife and ills. You might remember that a part of that song, Luther asks the question, dost ask who that may be? That is, who is this strong defender? Then comes Luther's answer. Lord Sabaoth is he. You know, those words sound ancient, and to many they sound meaningless, but the word Sabaoth. In modern translations, the Lord of hosts. You know, you think how often in the scriptures, we read that as a description of God, the Lord of hosts, a mighty commander, God, our warrior. That's Israel's song. Look at it this way. Every nation has a song or even a series of songs. You know, we might think of our national anthems. You know, those songs sing the praises, the glories of the nation. But Moses teaching Israel to sing a new song. It's a different song. It's the glory of Israel is her God not her natural resources, not her military strength. It's Yahweh. He has a unique place. Now having introduced God as the God of strength and calling for praises to him who is the nation's strength, Moses then recounts in poetic form the events that Israel must never forget. Her song will be a song of God's victories. So look at verses four and five. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone." And the point here is that the defeat of the armies of Pharaoh is utter. It is complete. None of the charioteers were going to go home that day. They were killed on the field of battle, not just a few, not even the majority. The entire regiment was wiped out and were no more. Indeed, they don't lie on the battlefield where their bodies can be repatriated. Rather, they went to the depths like a stone. This sinking to the depths sounds like the Old Testament description of Sheol, which is the land of the dead. In Sheol, all boasting is over. You might want to think about how Isaiah describes that as he's describing the king of Babylon, Isaiah 149 to 11. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you all who are leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we are. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. See, in an instant, the proud men of Egypt in their chariots became weak and descended to the depths of Sheol and maggots and worms were their bed from proud warriors to humiliated men in an instant, such is the might of Yahweh. And what then is the conclusion that we make of this? Well, the next stanza in Moses' song tells us, verses 6 and 7, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Notice the twice reference to God's right hand. We know that God is spirit, so we know it's a metaphor. But since most people are right-handed, the right hand of the warrior is the hand in which he holds his sword. And if his right hand is skilled, he's very strong. The right hand of a mighty man of war is a hand to be feared. Well, God's right hand is the hand that is to be feared for sure. But it is the hand of a warrior that shatters the enemy. Indeed, God's hand of war is a glorious thing to behold. Notice what has become of God's enemies. In my first, they're shattered. That means their effectiveness is beyond recovery. And second, they're overthrown. That is, their defeat is absolute. And finally, they're consumed like dry stubble, completely burned. Such is the glorious power of God. Now in the next section, Moses recounts again the events of the Red Sea, verses 8 and 10. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. (laughs) Isn't it interesting that earlier in Exodus, when Israel stood on the western side of the Red Sea, And the Egyptians were almost upon them. That Exodus 14 verse 21 says that in the night, a strong east wind blew all that night. Moses now teaches Israel to sing about that wind. That wind was the blast from God's nostrils. You know, it was an unusual blast because the water congealed. I mean, we get the idea, you know, of seeing blood drying. It congeals. It becomes gelatinous, gooey. The substance becomes thick. Like jello. And that's what to the Egyptians it looked like. And they conclude it's safe to follow Israel. Something has impacted the waters, but they no longer need to fear the water. But the Egyptians didn't recognize the consistency of the water for what it truly was. That water was the drawn sword in the right hand of God. Egypt had fallen into God's trap. And all of that leads to a conclusion. You see, it's never enough to simply explain what happened. It's important to reach a conclusion about what happened. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? See, very good. Let's stop at that first sentence. It's a question, but it's a rhetorical question and it demands an answer. The answer it demands is no one, no one at all. Remember the question, who is like you, O Lord, O Yahweh? Who among the gods of the nations is like Yahweh of Israel? And please remember, this is a question that needed to be asked repeatedly, and it needed to be answered throughout the life of the nation. You know, there were gods of Egypt, everything from the sun god to the gods of the Nile to the gods of fertility. All of those gods had been exposed as powerless, that is, during the ten plagues. Don't fear them. And then there were the gods of the nations surrounding the Promised Land. Over and over again in the future, Israel would feel attracted to those gods. But in truth, none of those gods could make the Red Sea congeal and stand in a heap. You know, none of those gods drowned an entire army, not one. Yahweh is incomparable, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. And let's stop there and speak of the greater deliverance, not from the Egyptians, but from Satan's tyranny. We the people of Jesus were once, as Paul would say, dead in trespasses and sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were to put it plainly, captives to Satan's dark kingdom. And there was no way out, we were slaves. But Jesus on the cross subjected Satan and his kingdom to a devastating defeat and brought us out of his kingdom and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God. What shall we say? We must say, who is like you among the gods? For indeed, we will bow to no other than Jesus and to Jesus alone. We will say with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who when Hitler rose to power said, no man deserves to be called Fuhrer, but Christ and Christ alone. To him alone will we bow. He is incomparable. Banish the idols and call Jesus Lord and God. He alone is Lord.
0: Thanks so much for your message, John. Let me ask you, you know, we're observing a people here in this text delivered from slavery. But is it really possible to experience true freedom from those things that enslave us from the past?
1: Well, of course, the promise in Scripture is that there is freedom in Christ and that he does release us from all of these bondages. But I do think there is value for us to recognize the things that held us and the things that continue to enslave us. Um, You know, we have to look at everything to which we are in some sense enslaved, and we have to apply that to the grace of Christ and the cross. So I think there's a deliberate call here to identify the enslavement of our past and of our sin, and then to come to terms with what the gospel promises us, and then also then to apply those promises and seek the help of the Holy Spirit We're called not to remain in those sins. We're called upon to be truly free as Christ has wanted us to be free. That's the promise of the gospel. Uh, It's a shame when it doesn't happen, but it can happen through the power of the
0: Spirit. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever wanted to spend time in fellowship with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, or even the leadership team behind them? Well, this is your chance. We invite you to join us on a cruise from April 5th to the 14th of 2024. Kicking off in Miami, we'll sail through several stunning locations within the Caribbean. The beautiful scenery combined with the Bible teaching of Dr. John, spiritual encouragement of Laugh again's Phil Calloway, and feature musical guests is a recipe for the vacation of a lifetime. This is a time to be refreshed on so many levels. So for more information, to download the itinerary, visit backtothebible.ca, call us at 1-800-663-2425. And please note that with all ministry travel events, no ministry funds are spent. All related costs are covered by participants.